This morning I'm going to be reading from Hebrews chapter 10, starting with verse 26 through the end of the chapter. Hebrews 10, starting at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when... After you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Heavenly Father, we look to you today to give us strength to endure. We pray, Lord, that you would give us all the faith that we need to look to Jesus. He is everything that we need. Give us our assurance in him, and we ask it in his holy name. Amen. I read an interview this week where a man said that this opening paragraph here in Hebrews 10 that it scared him so much that he could not sleep for two nights. And he had never read this, I guess, all that closely before, and once he had done so, he couldn't get the thought out of his mind of whether or not this passage of Scripture was talking about him. That was his concern. And I think that as we look at this passage, we can see why he might have lost some sleep, can't we? Look at the language that is here in these verses. Phrases like fearful expectation of judgment, fury of fire, dies without mercy, outrage the spirit of grace, and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If words like these don't, at the very least, get your attention, I don't know if you're awake. And maybe that could be a problem this morning, us losing an hour last night, but I hope that this word has your attention. The thought of these very things being the destiny of some people who are alive today to stand before the living God and receive wrath 
and fury because they reject the blood of his son. There is nothing more terrible than that. There is nothing more final than that. There's no coming back for another chance. And if you believe that you can think of something worse than hell and God's judgment, you are mistaken. We dealt with this same teaching back in chapter 6, if you remember. And Hebrews, it uses the same pattern here as it did back there. A warning for those who take their sin lightly and believe that they're okay in the eyes of God. All is well, nothing to worry about. I can do whatever I want. No fear. God is merciful. I'm good. But there's an appropriate question for everybody in this room to ask as we engage in this passage right here, and is, how can I know if this passage is talking about me? Is this talking about me? There's an old saying about preaching. It should afflict the comfortable, and it should comfort the afflicted. My hope this morning is to do more of the second one. Though if God see fit, the first one is fine too. I want those who might be a bit fearful or anxious to have assurance and to know where to find it. Assurance that you belong to the Lord is one of the things that God delights for you to have. No good father wants his child to live in doubt of his sonship. To always have disownment hanging over his head. Well, if you do that, you're not my kid. No good father wants that. No, a good father delights for his sons and daughters to rest assured in his love for them, to find peace in it, to have the security in him. That is a good place to be. And I hope this morning that is where you are. If that's not where you are and you need to be, I hope that you walk out of here this morning having it. One of the devil's chief delights is to cause God's people to doubt their place with the Lord, to constantly worry, to be anxious, to always wonder if they've done something to cast their faith overboard, send themselves to hell. To worry that when they don't feel the presence of God that it means that he's left them on their own. There was a lady that attended our church, passed away a couple of years ago, who lived under this constant kind of fear. She experienced very little peace, very little rest, very little joy for much of the last few years of her life. She rejoiced when the rays of sunlight would break through into her heart, but her failures, they were always weighing her down. She was always concerned that God did not love her. Peace just never seemed to prevail, and the beauty of Christ was always hidden from her. And I don't want for any of you to be walking away from today's message like that, doubting, afraid. I want you all to see the warning here for what it is, and that's exactly what it is. It is a warning that needs to be heeded. But I want you to find shelter from the threats of the warning where God has provided it, and he has. He has provided it. So who is being described here in verses 26 to 31, and should you be concerned? 
This passage describes a person who is what can be termed an apostate. That word is not used here, but that's the implication. It is a person who has departed, rejected, forsaken the hope that is in Jesus Christ. They have turned away. How is it that that person is described here? We're given lots of details on how we can know who this person is. Look at verse 26 with me. Verse 26 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after a knowledge of the truth. So the apostate, the person described here, is someone who has gone on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. It is not the person who sins after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Because if that was who it was being described, that would describe every person in this room. We have all sinned, have we not, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. This is a person who persists in sinning with a kind of attitude, a mindset that distinguishes him or her from other people. What's the attitude? What does that look like? Verse 27 we're told that God's fury of fire will consume the adversaries. So this is a person with an attitude toward God that is adversarial. They are an opponent of God. They oppose him with their nature. There's more in verse 29. This is somebody who has trampled under their feet the Son of God and his blood. What things do you trample on? What kind of things do you walk on out there? The word in the next phrase that my translation gives as profane, it says to profane the blood of the covenant, it means to count something as common. It's common. When I was young, I collected sports cards. Maybe you did too. And some of those sports cards were described as common cards. What did that mean? It meant that those things were worthless. They were a dime a dozen. You know, those are the types of cards that you would just leave laying around the house to get stepped on, to get cleaned up, to get thrown away. They weren't worth anything. But what about the special cards, the ones that weren't common? I've still got those today. They have value to them. And the common cards, they did not. So to treat the blood of Jesus just like any other blood, common blood, not redeeming blood, not cleansing blood, not forgiving blood, that is the mindset of the apostate. So from what we see here in these verses a, is a person who is willing and who persists in their sin without regard for the blood of Jesus Christ. They don't care about it. They don't care about it. The apostate rejects the sacrificial offering that God provides through the death of his son, treating Jesus' blood as nothing, something worthless, just something to be thrown away, something to be counted as nothing. This is deeply personal to God, deeply personal. Out of his heart that's filled with mercy toward his enemies, what did he do? He sent his one and only son to die. In the Old Testament, 
families were told to send their best lamb. Best lamb out of that year's flock. Spotless, perfect, firstborn, to be a sacrifice and an offering to God. Their best. Give your best to the Lord. That's what they were told. But what would the temptation be for them to do? To give something far less than their best, right? Send the lamb with all the deformities. That little lamb that's struggling to walk, got one eye, got the tumor growing out of the side of its neck. You know, that lamb needs to be put down anyway. Let's send that one. That would just kind of make sense, right? Let's go ahead and get rid of that lamb. No, the family had to send their best male lamb. And I've thought about this a little bit. I've got children, and we've given away some animals before, and I know how it pulls at their heartstrings. Can you imagine these families that every year they have little lambs come into their family, born into the flock, the children get to know the little lambs, Dad comes to them and says, I'm sorry, sweetheart, that lamb's being sent to God to die for our sins. I don't know if that really would have softened the blow with those kids. They would have cried at the thought of that little bang lamb losing its life. So in that home, there would have been a kind of lament taking place while at the same time, a joy of knowing that their sins were forgiven, right? So a sadness, a lament mixed with joy. So here, God sent his one and only lamb, not one of many lambs, his one and only, and not an animal. God sent his son. Perfect, spotless, obedient, loving. He sent his son. And I don't know about you, I'm sure you do too, you know, just the thought. I treasure my son. And he's not perfect. And he's not spotless. He is loving. God sent Jesus to give his life in the place of rebels. And do you think that the Father had no emotion in this? That when Jesus was handed over to his killers, that the Father just sat back and he yawned? Nah, no big deal. He must have torn at his heart. His beloved son in agony. But at the same time, the father rejoiced. Isaiah 53 tells us that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Why? Why would it be God's will? Why would this please God? We're told so that he could make many righteous through him, us. It delighted the father's heart to make many righteous through his lamb that he would offer up for our sins. The Father's perfect lamb, he brings peace to us. So again, this is deeply personal to God. 
He has provided for our sins through his own son's blood. And there are men and women out there who count that blood as nothing. Nothing. Worthless. Something to be walked on. And we see the reaction of God's spirit there in verse 29. Outrage. Outrage. And rightfully so. So here we're described, we're being told about this person that's an apostate. So this apostate has been told about the lamb. He's experienced being around the lamb's people. He's been witness to the lamb's power in the community, but yet he does not care about the lamb. He doesn't see his need for the lamb, and he chooses his sin as more valuable to him than the blood of the lamb. That's who's being described here. And is this passage then, as we look at it in that context, the father offering up his son as that perfect lamb, is this starting to make more sense to you? Amen, brother. Does this apply to you? Some of you may have come in here today separated from the blood of the lamb. Outside of the covenant, you're without forgiveness is there any good reason, any good reason why you would reject this lamb? Why you would reject God's son? And do you think, based on what you see here, that it is better to hold on to your sin, that it's better to hold on to your pride, than embrace God's mercy that he freely, freely, freely offers to you through the blood of his son? Is there any good reason why you would do that? If anything deserves a fury of fire from a holy God, it is the rejection of this son and his blood. So we can see why it would be a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God with this kind of attitude. What a hardened brute one would have to be to spurn this kind of grace and this kind of kindness from a God as merciful as this. Remember that these first hearers of the letter, they were being tempted to go back to Judaism, to leave Jesus for the sacrifices of the Old Testament. And they're being told here as clearly as possible if you leave Jesus, the only thing left for you is judgment. Why? Because there is no other offering coming for your sin. The one and only sacrifice of Jesus has been offered up to cleanse you, to bring you peace with God, to live in his holy presence forever. It's been done. It is finished. What are you waiting for? There's no better sacrifice to be made. So if you think one is coming, you're wrong. And you will be left in your sins and left in judgment. Look to Jesus now. That's what they're being told. But the preacher here, he wants God's people comforted, not just scared. And warnings do have good purposes, do they not? I think all parents know that. Need to know when to use the good warning. But encouragements have their place 
for God's people too. And the people in this particular church, they were given this writer reason for concern. They started to have this look about them that maybe they weren't trusting in Jesus anymore, but he's telling them that there is more reason he has for hope than he does for concern. They had given him plenty of reason in the past that they were not the kind of people that rejected Christ, that they were not apostate. Why? Because of the Christ-like love that they had shown for other believers in the past. And so the grace of God had been clearly seen in their actions before. God's fruit was on the branches showing what? That they were attached to the vine. He's seeing the stuff of Jesus in the lives of these people. And that gave him hope that grace would be there again in the future. That it wasn't just stuck in the past. It was there in the future as well for these people. He has hope for them. Look at verses 32 to 34. He gives them specific reasons why he has hope for them. The fruit that he sees in their lives. Verse 32, it says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. So they had endured a hard struggle with particular kinds of suffering there in this church. They didn't just encounter suffering. Like everybody encounters suffering in their lives, did they not at one point or another? They endured through it. They had faith through their suffering, meaning their faith did not fail as they encountered it. They did not run out of gas in the middle of the journey. Faith was there all the way through. What is it that they had to endure? It says they were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes they were partners of those so treated. What does that mean? It means that they were held up as fools in public for following Christ, and they were shamefully treated for it. And so to be a disciple in their day equaled exposing themselves to contempt publicly. Follower of Jesus meant shame. Some way or another, because they followed Jesus, they would subject themselves to hardship. It was just natural. And so the beliefs of the kingdom, they did not align with the beliefs of the culture. But guess what? They did not give in to the culture. They were more concerned about pleasing King Jesus than they were in pleasing man. He had more of their heart. He owned their hearts. They knew who they belonged to. They did not belong to the culture. They weren't worried about applause from them more than they were from Christ. We should, brothers and sisters, be able to relate. We should. Because I think the temptation in our day, probably more than anything else for the Christian, is to water down our convictions publicly so that what? We will remain respectable to the public. The like us. I think that's pretty natural, isn't it? We all want to be liked don't we? You don't like to hear about it when people have their feathers ruffled at you and 
Ugh. You want to be liked. It's that temptation is constantly there to lessen our beliefs, be more like them, just so that we can be accepted, respectable, not that kind of Christian, right? Instead of standing firm with what Jesus says is good and what Jesus says is evil, Plain and simple. You will get canceled for not having mainstream views on human sexuality, gender, gender roles, and not just what it means to be a man or a woman, which is even under challenge in our public sphere right now. But even proper roles between a husband and wife in marriage, the world hates authority and it hates boundaries. But God has given us both for good. And so if you don't give in to what the culture says is right and good today, and whatever else becomes the next talking point tomorrow, because that's constantly going to change. You give in once, you're going to have to give in and give in and give in for the rest of your life. It will never stop. The culture will never be satisfied with, this is good. Oh, no. You will have to compromise for the remainder of your life. And so if you don't give in to what they say is right and good, you will become a pariah, an untouchable, the world's version of the outcast and unclean. Are you prepared for that? You better be. That's what these people had to deal with back in their day. They did not give in. They stood firm. And they were willing not just to stand up for what Jesus said was right and good. They were willing to suffer for it publicly. What would that mean for you? Social media, people calling you out. Family get-togethers, being shamed. What does that look like? Are you willing to stand with Jesus and receive public shame for the applause of God. The faithful will not throw away the truth or change their stripes for the applause of the world. The book of James says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? He says that's adultery, spiritual adultery, to give yourself in and follow the culture rather than follow the Lord. These people right here, they persevered through public scorn like their Savior did. This is what he sees in these people. He sees the life of Jesus Christ because what happened with him? He received public shame. He was treated scornfully in public for doing the Father's will and speaking the truth. 
And that's what this writer of Hebrews sees in these people. He sees Jesus Christ in them. They endured through it for the delight of the Father, just like their Savior. That's what he sees. And this gives him hope. But that's not all. Look at verse 34. It says, you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They had compassion on those in prison. That did not mean that they were just going and starting up a prison ministry to convicts. That's not what he's talking about here. It means that they were showing brotherly love to church members who had been arrested for the name of Christ. They were willing to identify themselves with their brothers in jail. Why were they in jail? For being Christians. And so when you go to jail and you identify with them, you're saying, I belong here with this person in jail. I have the same beliefs they do and do the same things they do. And I'm here to minister to them. They did not shrink back from that. They went. They showed care for their brothers and sisters in Christ. And that opened up themselves to further suffering, right? Jail time. Maybe some of them got it too, just for going. And so what he's saying here is that in the past I have seen in you that you did not shrink in fear from claiming that you belong to Jesus. You weren't afraid. They were willing to sacrifice for the good of others, even at great cost to themselves. Like who? Jesus. Jesus too. Paul describes that there in Philippians chapter 2, that what did Jesus do? He left the heavenly places, left a place of glory to do what? To come down here and suffer even at great cost to himself for us. That's what this writer sees in these people. Love. Not easy love. Not cheap love. He sees sacrificial love in these people. The Savior's love. So what is he encouraging them with? He's saying to them, I have seen Jesus in you. I've seen Jesus in you. Evidence of his life and his power have shown through you in the past, and that gives him confidence that these people will continue to do that same thing in the future. That's what he sees. Christ. Why should that give him confidence that these people are going to persevere and are going to continue on? Why is he strengthened by that? So why would past evidence of grace make this writer so confident of grace in the future? And he is confident, is he not? Look at verse 39. He says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He's not just talking a good game and trying to work them up right here into stronger faith. He's saying, we are not that kind of people. I am confident that you will not shrink back and have your soul destroyed, but that you will continue on in the faith. 
confidence is there. He's not a rah-rah cheerleader saying to these people, you can do it. I believe in you. You are strong. You are powerful. You hear stuff like that from the world, do you not? That's not what he's doing here. Because he knows where his confidence really is. And it's something much stronger than these people. And that gives him confidence. And let me say something before I get to that better confidence. Remember that guy that I mentioned who read this passage of Scripture, this opening verses, and it scared him? Let me, let me trace for you a common train of thought that somebody might take with this passage of Scripture. When you read verses 26 to 31, they scare you to death and they make you wonder if you're saved. I think that's a common train of thought. You read that, you're immediately thinking to yourself, is this me? Is this me? But then you read the next section of Scripture and you see the evidence in these people of salvation. You see the good works. And then what will you do with that? It'll make you look for good works in yourself so that you can have confidence like these people did, right? And then you want to do more good works to prove that you really are saved. Man, I, I've got I to get out there and suffer a little bit more. Let me go out there and find some suffering so that I can feel good about my faith and know that I belong to Jesus. And so the temptation for God's people will be to look at their good works and find some assurance there. To put your eyes on the good things that you've done in the past and hope for some good things to do in the future so that you can feel good that you are following Jesus. And as your pastor this morning, I do not want your eyes there. I don't want you looking at your good works. They have their place, but they do not have the primary place. The main thing has always been that God's people will look where? Christ. Christ is our assurance. He is. Everything that he's done, everything that he is, everything that he is doing right now, and everything that he has promised for us in the future, our eyes are to be on Jesus. Everything that we have rests in him, the solid rock. That's where our eyes need to be. He is the chief cornerstone where everything is built. Every promise that you have in the future is on Jesus, not on your performance. Some of you will be tempted to trust in what you see happening in you to make you confident that you're a child of God. And don't get me wrong, this man right here is using the evidence in these people to have confidence in them himself, but he's not telling them to just look, in, to look at their works. So when he says to them that the righteous one shall live by faith, faith in what? Not in what they have done, but in what Christ has done. So some of you are going to be tempted to trust. I'm going to be tempted to trust in what I see happening in me. 
to make me confident that I'm a child of God. And so will you. A couple of examples. So because you love holiness right now, you're on fire for holiness and purity, and it's a good thing. Because you love holiness right now, you're going to say, I know that I am his. But what about the day when your thinking is all messed up, stuff hadn't gone the way that you've wanted it to, and holiness has lost its shine? You don't have that burning zeal for it then that you do right now. Where is your confidence then? Is it stolen from you? Some of you are going to be trusted to, or tempted to trust in your fight against sin to make you confident that you're a child of God. And because you've turned all of your energies against that sin, you know that one, whatever that one is for you, that particular sin that plagues you. And right now, you are zealous to make war against it, to eradicate it from your life and all the destruction that it has caused you. Right now, that is your main focus. And because it is, you find confidence in that, that you are a child of God. But what about the day when you give in to that sin and there you are guilty again? Some of you are going to be tempted to trust in your love for other people. Tempted to trust in your willingness to meet their needs, to make you confident that you're a child of God. You are a servant right now. And you can see evidence in your life where you're serving all these people and you're taking care of their needs. But what about the day when you realize that you have not been serving like you used to? And to be rather honest, you just don't feel like it anymore. Same zeal's just not there at the moment. And no doubt we want fruit in our lives that tell us and other people that we're connected to the true vine, Jesus. But understand this, that our confidence is not in the fruit. The believer's confidence is in the giver of the fruit, and his name is Jesus. That's where our confidence needs to be this morning. That if you do have fruit, it is coming from him. He is the source of it. That is where our assurance needs to rest. And so who is it that makes you desire holiness? Where does that desire come from? Christ. Who gives you the strength to fight against sin? Even that one, the hardest of them. Christ. Who makes you able to love other people sacrificially like he did? Christ. And who has promised you a future reward and gives you hope that you will have it and have it forever? Christ. And here's the kicker. When your heart fails and sadness overwhelms, difficulties mount, hope fades Satan taunts. Who holds you close and won't let you go? Christ. Every now and then we sing that song, He will hold me fast. He'll hold me tight. He will not let me go. He is my assurance. 
Jesus is. He is the only reason that you and I will cross the finish line. He has bought you. He has indwelt you with his own spirit. He empowers you for any victory that ever comes about in your life. And he has secured your hope with his own blood. The key to all of this is to look to him right now as your confidence. My temptation is to find security in how well I am doing. Is that yours? I'm doing great right now. I'm secure in that. Then all of it's ripped away in the moment when you're not doing well. Or maybe you find security in just how well things are going in your life. Your circumstances are good. God loves me. Everything's going well. And then what? The day comes when everything's not going well. And then is your security ripped away from you? God doesn't love me anymore. He doesn't care about me. Can you identify with that at all? But God is reminding us here to look to his son and trust that what he has done is enough and that he will keep his promises to us. He will not let us go. That is the only safe place for the child of God. It is not up to you to remain secure, to keep yourself saved. You find shelter in the shadow of the Most High. He will secure you. You will not be ripped out of his hand. So I ask, is the warning in this passage talking about you? Do you have reason for fear that you are the apostate and that you will fall into the hands of an angry and living God? No one has reason in this room to fear that if you are looking to Jesus Christ. That he is the all-sufficient, everything-provided Savior. Apostates do not trust in Jesus. Plain and simple. They reject him and trample on his blood as common. But believers, what do they do? They cast themselves completely on Christ and find themselves on solid, solid ground. And so when fear comes and you're tempted to be given to the thought and mind and attitude that you've been cast overboard, what is it that you are being called to do? You look over at Jesus again. You find comfort for your soul. You can say to yourself, ah, there he is. You know, when things start to waver, storms start to come, your heart is disquieted inside of you, you're cast about, you look over at Jesus as solid as he is, unchanging, always there, and find your security in him. Ah, thank you, Jesus. Where the holes are in your hands, there's the holes in your feet. That's right. You said it was finished, and it is. You told me that it was. It's complete. You are not a liar. Whatever you say is true. 
It should be too good to be true, but he promises that it is so, and so it must be. So you can say to your soul, be quiet. Be still. Better yet, Jesus can say to your soul, be still. And his people can understand that he is truly all that we need. So as you prepare to leave, look to Christ. He is the assurance of our salvation. He is your confidence. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We do thank you for warnings. What do those warnings do? They make us look to Christ. If we look at ourselves, we will be tossed about. Ships tossed about in the winds and the waves of the ocean. That is what we would be. But with Christ, we have a lighthouse always guiding us to shore. We have an anchor for our souls that always grounds us in the truth. Storms can come, but we have Christ. He's our security. And so, Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for Jesus, for sending your lamb for us to offer up his life so that we can experience your joy and forgiveness and peace. If there's anybody in this room today, Lord, who is tempted to look elsewhere, we pray, God, that they would have eyes of faith to see Jesus and to delight in the offering that has been made for their sins. They can be purified, cleansed, and stand in your presence based on what he has done, not based on what they have done. Nor do they need to look at their failures today, God. Their failures are covered by his blood. May they see him and be satisfied in him. That's where our hearts need to be today as we leave. Give that to us, please, God. And we pray it in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.